Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor at US in Washington, DC. I'm Ida Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 29th of September. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Giorgia Meloni is poised to become Italy's next prime minister. I am Georgia. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am Italian. I am Christian. And you can't take that away from me. What will that mean for Italy and for Europe? We also discuss Russia's illegal referendums in eastern Ukraine. The world will react absolutely justly to pseudo-referendums. They will be definitely condemned and for the criminal mobilization that the occupiers are currently trying to carry out in Crimea and other parts of the Ukraine, which they still control. And what might be their consequences? And we take a listener question on upcoming elections in Brazil. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, your ears have not deceived you. Jeremy is back on the podcast to talk about European elections. Welcome, Jeremy. Good to be back. Before we go any further, I do want to plug, for those of you who have not already listened, our colleague Katie's podcast on China and Xi Jinping. First episode is up now. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And it is, I'm really excited about it. I think it's a super interesting lesson. If you were remotely interested in China and in Xi and in his rise, I highly encourage you to take a listen. But now, back to European elections. On Sunday, Italians went to the polls. As expected, the big winner was Giorgia Maloney of the right-wing Brothers of Italy party, which has its roots in, quote, post-fascism, end quote. Many in Italy have insisted the foreign press paid too much attention to the whole fascism thing, and that that wasn't really what the election was about. But now that she's won, what can Maloney be expected to usher in for Italy and for Europe more broadly? Jeremy, I just want to quickly start with this one point, because if listeners who listened to the episode that we did with Tim Parks not too long ago... So Tim Parks, for those who didn't listen, uh, is a writer who lives in Italy and who actually voted in this Italian election. 
And basically his point was that it wasn't really about fascism for voters. And instead it was about sort of feeling disconnected from the governments that, that have ruled over Italy since they've been appointed and then elected and sort of a, a pushback against technocratic elitism, so on and so forth. But I think for those of us not in the thick of it, it's sort of hard to look at anything involving fascism and not say that the fascism is the most important thing. So how do you sort of reconcile that in your in your mind? I think, first of all, on the distinction between how this was viewed in Italy and how it was viewed outside Italy, I think it's important to remember that those of us not immersed in Italian politics find the idea of a party with roots in neo-fascism very novel and I think justly alarming. But for Italians, it's not actually completely new. You know, Meloni, when she was young, was a member of the, this Italian social movement, which was a sort of predecessor of her party today, Brothers of Italy. Um, and while they were marginal in post-war and sort of Cold War Italian politics, they were not totally taboo. You know, they propped up a Christian Democrat government in the 60s. In the 80s, they were even given a seat on the board of the public broadcaster. And that was the sort of the unreconstructed neo-fascist predecessor of her current party. And then you have one other generation between the Italian social movement and Brothers of Italy, which was the National Alliance, which is the party she she became part of in, in the mid-90s. And they were part of all of Silvio Berlusconi's governments from 1994 all the way through to the late 2000s. And so the idea that a party with that heritage can be in power isn't entirely new in Italy. Of course, it is new that that party is now leading a new government. Maloney will almost certainly now become prime minister. Brothers of Italy is by far the largest party in what will be that right-wing governing coalition. But I think it's just not quite as new for Italians. On the point about kind of fascist or not fascist or extreme right or centre right, I think too much of the, the discourse has been too binary, has mm. assumed that there's one or the other. Either you have kind of soft, cuddly, centre-right parties, and then you have extreme fascists and Nazis. And the reality in Italy, as elsewhere, is that those those categories have become extremely blurred, mm -hmm. and not just in Italy. Across Europe, you're seeing conventional Christian Democrat or conservative parties embracing elements of the populist right. You're also seeing extreme parties um, rebrand themselves, maybe abandon their most extreme positions, and make themselves more acceptable. And I think the, the, the big story is that the divide between those categories is becoming more and more blurred. And I think you see that in Italy in the fact that, yes, Meloni is the one of the three main right-wing parties to have its roots in Italian fascism, but its policies are not that different from either the Lega, which is one of the other three parties in that broad block, or Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia. You know, they're, they're not that far apart. And one of them has roots in fascism, the other two don't. But so blurred has it become that you wouldn't necessarily tell that from their manifestos. Just to follow up on that, I mean, listening to that, it's not, I, I can see how someone would say like, oh, there's not much difference between her and the center-right. But the uh, the reverse side means that elements of extremism have been, have been so adopted by the center-right that they are now indistinguishable from the far-right. Yeah. I mean, a case in point is this party, the Lega, which is the party of Matteo Salvini. They didn't. They did actually quite poorly at this election, but they've been a feature in Italian politics for about three decades. And they started off as a sort of relatively hard to place party that was mainly known for campaigning for more autonomy for the wealthier northern regions of Italy. Now, interestingly, I saw a lot of people on, on social media were 
promoting a video of Georgia Maloney talking about a very kind of right-wing conception of the family. And she said, oh, I don't want a version of the family where it's parent one and parent two rather than mother and father. And a lot of people are saying, look, isn't she really, really right-wing? This is, this, this is, this is the sort of neo-fascist tradition. And of course it is very right-wing and very reactionary. But Matteo Salvini had been making exactly those points during the election campaign. I was at a rally at which all of the main right-wing leaders were speaking in Rome last Thursday, where Salvini literally used that phrase, parent, I don't want parent one, parent two, it's mothers and fathers. So I think it just goes to show that what people are pointing at and saying, look, that's neo-fascism, is also true of other elements of the Italian right, some of which were not conventionally seen as, as extreme. The key point to come back to my, my original argument is, is that the line is, the line is more and more blurred. Absolutely. That video was also incidentally shared by many uh, Republicans in the United States. We can all take from that what we will. Part of what has been missing from this conversation, not our conversation, but the, the broader conversation about Maloney's victory is that there's been a lot of, oh, this is so concerning and she's going to come in and she's going to be Trump. But it's it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that she won't actually be empowered to do all that much as Italy's new prime minister. It's true that she has certain restraints. One is maintaining her coalition, there are tensions between her and Salvini, for example. Another is keeping the European institutions broadly on side because Italy is the main beneficiary of the EU's post-COVID recovery fund. It's in line to get about 200 billion euros of support. She's going to have to tackle a cost of living crisis. And that will, of course, take a lot of energy and political capital away from other priorities like, for example, reactionary social reforms. That said, the policies of both Brothers of Italy and the other parties in that coalition are very reactionary. Maloney in particular pursues this sort of right-wing natalism. I mean, it, it kind of it borders on, and she has evoked the great replacement theory conspiracy, which effectively says that Europeans or native Europeans are being replaced by migrants. Now, I'm not saying that she's going to put that conspiracy wholesale into government practice. She would, I think, given the chance, pursue policies encouraging Italians to have more children, making life yet more difficult for migrants in Italy, for LGBT people, make it more difficult for people to get abortions. Now, the, the sad truth is that on none of those fronts is Italy particularly progressive as things stand. So it's the most likely thing is that a, a bad status quo broadly stands still and no progress is made. But I think if she has the time and the capital, she would she would pursue that. The one other thing I would mention on the domestic front, which is worth watching, is uh, Maloney is in favour of a more presidential system, something a bit more like the French political system. And you don't have to look you know, too hard to find examples of how presidential systems have benefited hard-right politicians, whether we're looking at Le Pen coming not too far from winning the French election, or Trump, or indeed Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who we're going to discuss later in the episode. Now, the right didn't get the two-thirds of the parliamentary seats that it would need to drive through constitutional change bringing in a presidential system without a referendum, but it can still do it with a referendum. And there have been indications since the election that, that, that Maloney would like to pursue that if she gets the chance. So that's something I think worth watching, because that, that would mean a, a transformation of the Italian political system that could have very, very big implications. Often when right-wing leaders come to power in Europe, there's concern that they're going to be sympathetic to Putin. Obviously, given the war that is the war in Ukraine, that's particularly concerning. Maloney has sort of tried to position herself as quite supportive of Ukraine. But do you think that her election could have, have negative consequences for European solidarity and support for Ukraine? I think there are reasons both to be pessimistic and optimistic. I think on the pessimistic side of things, there is certainly a degree of opportunism to her support for Ukraine. I think, I think for her, it is a sort of, it is a bridge to the European institutions and a sort of badge of respectability 
and there are elements of her likely soon to be government that are traditionally quite pro Putin, most obviously Matteo Salvini and the Lega. On the optimistic side, I think her pro Ukraine stance is also somewhat authentic in that her her party and its tradition has long been fairly Atlanticist. And that, that goes all the way back to the neo-fascist movement during the Cold War, which I think looked to the US because it was very anti-communist. But Maloney has, you know, she's made it clear that she sees herself very much in line with US republicanism on foreign policy. She spoke at CPAC this year. And I think that on foreign policy terms, for example, within the EU, she's definitely closer to Poland's government, which is pretty right-wing and reactionary, but is very hawkish on Russia than to Hungary's government, which is has similar domestic instincts, but is very dovish on Russia, shall we say. I don't see Italy's stance on Ukraine changing particularly, apart from perhaps that she might broadly share the same policy instincts on Ukraine as Mario Draghi, her predecessor, but she is not a, a leader of his stature in Europe. You know, Draghi could pick up the phone easily to Paris or Brussels or Berlin, and he he was quite influential in putting Ukrainian membership of the EU on the agenda. He's been quite a, a, a sort of surprisingly strong advocate for Ukraine, particularly as an Italian prime minister. And Italy is a country that has always has generally tended to the, the more pro-Putin end of the spectrum within the European Union. And I think even if she takes the same views as him, she obviously won't have the same stature as him in the European institution. So it might just be that she pursues, pursues the same policy, but as it were, less effectively. Ido, do you have thoughts on what this means for Ukraine? Jeremy's right when he says that her support is to a degree deeply felt, but it's almost kind of irrelevant because there are very material factors for why, even if you oppose sanctions like Salvini does, for example, and you think that these sanctions need to be lifted, and Salvini's been one of the more vocal voices in European politics, becoming increasingly willing to, to say that sanctions were a bad idea and they should be lifted. That's something that he said during the election campaign. I mean, he's always had this kind of pro-Putin position, but he was really one of the kind of leading figures in European politics, along with like people like Orban and Le Pen, saying that sanctions were a bad idea. But like, that it's it's simply not possible to lift the sanctions and to re-establish trading relations like they were. This was the case uh, before this week. So, for example, if you were to lift sanctions on on businesses uh, doing trade in Russia, some of them would decide to re-establish operations in Russia, but many of them would say, European businesses, but many of them would say, this is just too risky and Russia has shown that it's unreliable and it's, a, it's an unreliable market and therefore we're not going to re-establish relations in Russia. So the, the trade would not go back to what it was on the 23rd of February. And this week we've had an even more visceral demonstration of that with these apparent attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines where we've had, which I imagine we're going to talk about, but which was critical to underpinning a, a very large part of Europe's trade relationship with Russia in terms of energy imports that's been, I mean, it, it looks like put out of action for a very long time, if not permanently. I mean, literally, even if we wanted to turn, out to, to turn back on the gas, we just can't now, at least through this pipeline. So so whether a particular government uh, or particular party or whatever is, is sympathetic to Russia, it's almost irrelevant because there are very sort of material um, constraints on how far those countries and those parties can put those policies into into effect. Well, we will continue to watch Maloney's, I mean, likely first days as prime minister, the referendum Jeremy's mentioned, and more. But for now, we are going to turn to our second subject, which is not unrelated. 
Russia carried out four illegal referendums on annexation in Ukraine, all of which it claims passed with over 90% of the vote. Again, it's not like a legitimate number. Putin intimated before these referendums were held that Russia, after annexing Ukrainian territory, could claim that an attack on it would fall under Russia's nuclear umbrella. Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president who, a little over a decade ago, winked at being a liberal, made this point more explicitly. So now that, right, like the referendums have been held, they're claiming that these territories are now Russia. I guess I, the, Ido and I were speaking about this earlier this week, and my take was sort of that this doesn't actually change anything in that the territory, like I could say that I'm the queen of Berlin, right? And like, I don't actually control Berlin. And it, it doesn't actually change the, the fighting on the ground. Like Russia doesn't occupy all of this territory, even militarily. So I don't know what declaring that it does, does in effect, unless it changes everything. And they decide that they actually are going to go for this and say, well, you attacked what I'm claiming is my territory and thus I'm going to use nuclear weapons. But Jeremy, Ido, what do you think? Ido, let's start with you. The way I see it is that this is Putin kind of setting out what he wants, setting out the kind of contours of some kind of settlement. And there are lots of signals that Putin is trying to signal that he's in this for the long term when it looked like Russia was losing militarily on the battlefield. So you can see this. You can see this with these so-called votes. You can see this with the announcement of a national conscription drive, which is uh, going to recruit hundreds of thousands, perhaps up to a million men to join the Russian armed forces. And you can see it in the nuclear threats. And it seems like Putin knows that, that Russia is losing on the battlefield and that he can see the kind of contours of a ceasefire or a peace deal, which is that Russia holds the territory that it already has and comes to some sort of settlement because the West is scared of nuclear war. Europe is scared of cold winter. The Ukrainians are being pressured by, you know, the Germans or whatever to, to settle. And, and the Ukrainians and the Russians come to this agreement where Putin holds this land bridge to Crimea and the eastern regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. That's at least how I see it. I don't really think that the second that Putin says that Hansk and Donetsk and Zaporizhia and Kherson are part of the Russian Federation, then the fact that large parts of Russia, as I'm doing air quotes there, you can't see it on the podcast, but I am, that large parts of Russia are occupied, air quotes again, by a foreign country, um, that suddenly that means that Russia will, will use nuclear weapons. Russia is a, is a big fan of these kind of elaborate legal fictions. So it's an aside, but um, these referendums that they're having in, in Zaporizhia and in Kherson, the ballot papers say, are you in favor of Kherson and Zaporizhia leaving Ukraine, becoming independent states and then acceding to Russia? So they, they have to have this sort of elaborate legal reasoning where the countries, where the, the, the regions become independent countries and then join Russia, which is according to the Russian le legal reasoning is what happened in Crimea in 2014. And they're doing the same thing. And in Donetsk and Luhansk too. So they're, 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 they're fans of these kind of elaborate legal legal fictions, but I, I really don't think that if the end game was to nuke uh, Ukraine or you know NATO or whatever, if I don't think that they would need to go through with these with these kind of elaborate fictions. I think it's more about setting out the contours of a deal and signalling that they're not about to to back down and for the West to kind of take them off on their on their on their bluff or not. Jeremy, I think it can't be stressed enough how fantastical these supposed referenda are. And I think some 
voices in the West that should know better have not been emphasizing that point sufficiently. I've, I've seen a few news agencies reporting the results of the referenda, the non-referenda, and then saying, well, and Ukraine disputes the validity of these of these results with sort of classic both sidesism. And likewise, in the German press recently, there's been a there's been a sort of a strong scene, including actually from figures who are not conventionally dovish towards Putin, of, oh, well, once these parts of Ukraine have been taken into Russia, what do we do then? Effectively taking this fiction at, at face value. And I think it can't be said, said, said often enough that Putin can come up with any number of nonsense claims. He can say, you know, he might want to decide tomorrow that Estonia is actually part of Russia, or maybe Eastern Poland, or maybe Moldova. It's still total nonsense. And I just think that, you know, you can't let the Russian fictions reframe the reality, which is that these places are Ukraine and him saying otherwise with some act of theatre of a referendum uh, changes anything. If And I think, you know, it's worth sort of sort of stressing, particularly among those in the West who inclined to think that it does change something fundamental, that at the end of the day, if Putin is mad enough to want to use nuclear force, then he'll do that, whether or not there's some grand story about why he's doing so uh, as a justification. And I just think it's it's important for the West to keep its eye on the fundamentals, which are that this is Ukraine, that Putin is an unpredictable leader whose state of mind it is hard to judge, and that the key thing is just to maintain support for Ukraine and 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 deter any escalation on his part. I saw a tweet, I think from a Lithuanian MP, that said that the people of the historic Lithuanian lands of Smolensk have decided that it's now Lithuania. So like, what? I mean, what are I we- I think that's the right sort of response. Anyway, Ido, there was other particularly notable news this week regarding Nord Stream's, Nord Stream, uh, just kidding, one and two. Do you want to quickly tell our listeners about what happened there and what might happen next? This week on, on Monday, the two Nord Stream pipelines, one and two, which run from Russia to Germany through the Baltic Sea, began spewing natural gas into the into the sea. And this was apparently the result of several quite large explosions close to the pipelines, which were recorded by seismologists in Sweden and Norway. Denmark, uh, Denmark and, and, German and Germany and Sweden have quickly said that they probably think that this was the result of sabotage, so deliberate uh, actions. That seems very, very likely because these are pipelines which are built from steel, which is four centimeters thick, coated with reinforced concrete, 11 centimeters thick. So it's hard to imagine that it could leak in three different places simultaneously because leaks in undersea pipelines are, are pretty rare. Obviously, it's very hard to attribute blame for for these explosions, um, but lots of countries have, have immediately pointed the finger to Russia so Poland and, and Ukraine in particular, um, and then there are some there's some slightly more um, esoteric reasoning. So the German newspaper, the Tagesspiegel, speculated that Ukraine quote Ukrainian or Ukrainian related forces could be responsible. More power to them. And um, most amusingly, I think was the former Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski who captioned a photo of the leak with quote "Thank you USA." So we might never know who's responsible. Um, just really want to stress that it is not the position of this podcast that the United States sabotaged these pipelines. Can we definitively say that it wasn't, though? But if, as as seen, as, as lots of countries have, have reasoned, uh, Russia was responsible for the attacks, um, the rationale probably went something like this. So Russia was permanently losing its leverage over the EU because 
the EU was rapidly becoming energy independent of Russia and was looking pretty confident that it was going to be able to get through the winter without too much difficulty without Russian energy, despite a lot of kind of fear that the winter would be very difficult because Russia had shut off the gas. It's trying to turn this leverage into an advantage by demonstrating its ability to hit these essential components of Europe's energy infrastructure. So this pipeline, obviously, because the EU's strategy to wean itself off Russian energy relies on increased imports from alternative suppliers like uh, Norway and Algeria, including many by by undersea pipeline, then this really shows that that infrastructure is vulnerable. And it's not only that infrastructure, it's also, um, for example, undersea communications cables, which typically do not have as much protection as a gas pipeline. So yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to ascribe blame. But what what you can say is that this does kind of highlight the vulnerability of a lot of Europe's critical infrastructure, including that which the EU's uh, winter energy plan relies on. Ido has written a piece on this that we will put in the show notes to this episode. And Jeremy has also written on our first segment on Maloney and the Italian elections. We will put those links in the show notes as well. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's time to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Thanks, Jeremy. You know, just kidding. Well, I'm not. But anyway, our listener question this week is well, Will Bolsonaro concede? So, this is a question about the outcome of the upcoming. Brazilian elections, if current Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro does not win, will he concede for the good of his country and democracy? Or will he follow the model of his neighbors to the north and insist that actually he won? Jeremy, what do you think? Brazil goes to the polls this Sunday, the 2nd of October in the first round of his election. It will be uh, the first of two, assuming that no candidate takes more than 50%, which currently looks likely. The former president from 2003 to 2010, uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, is leading on around 43% to 48%, depending on which poll you believe. Um, and that gives him an advantage of about 6 to 14 points over the sitting president, the far-right Jair Bolsonaro. Now, Bolsonaro has been making comments that will be familiar uh, to students of the run-up to and aftermath of the last American presidential election. He's been casting doubt on the electronic voting system that Brazil uses. He said effectively that if he loses, it means that fraud has been committed. He does not foresee a possibility that Lula could win legitimately. He's used violent language. He's talked about machine gunning supporters of Lula. And most notably, he said that he sees one of three outcomes of the election, that he ends up in prison, that he wins or ends up dead. So I think we can conclude from that and from his record as president that if he gets the chance to contest or to challenge or to upset the election result, he will take it. And the question is more, does he see that chance? And do those who are inclined to support him see that chance there? Brazil's democracy, it is probably fair to say, is less firmly established than America's. It's only been a democracy. It had a military dictatorship until 1985. The military is more politicized there, and parts of it are somewhat close to Bolsonaro. His running mate, for example, is a former general. And the view among Brazilian political analysts seems to be that where the chances of Bolsonaro seeing the opportunity to overturn the election result depend on the size of Lula's victory. If it is so vast as to be uh, sort of uncontestable, even by someone as extreme as Bolsonaro, then it's less likely. If it is if it, if it is much closer, then there is a chance that he stirs up his supporters to come onto the streets to commit acts of violence, giving the pretext then to bring in the army to quote-unquote restore order and then possibly invoke emergency powers. So long story short, the bigger the lead that Lula gets, the, the smaller the chance that Bolsonaro tries to put Brazil's democratic institutions to the test. 
Well, we will be watching that one with trepidation this weekend. And for now, Ido, will you please get us out of here? Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with David Broder, a historian of fascism in Italy, past and present. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you so much. It really helps. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. That really helps too. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.